Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian, USA Editor of Waters, and I am joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello, everyone. So, to get right into it, uh, I'm a bit tired of hearing about the toxic political climate here in the U.S., so today... I was kind of hoping to talk about the toxic political climate in Europe, Yay. and specifically Brexit. Um, so this week, Bloomberg, because of the latest, uh, Bloomberg basically became the latest technology provider to register uh, Netherlands-based entity for its reporting platform ahead of the expected British exit from the European Union in 2019. Uh, they are following the likes of Market Access, Bloomberg, and some other APAs, I believe. Um, James, you know, while registering, while the registering process for a reporting platform is not the sexiest of topics, in fact, when I was editing your story, it made me want to drink until I was blind. <laughs> um, why don't you kind of walk us through these latest developments? Yeah, I mean, it's unsurprising, I guess, to an extent. Um a lot of the, the major APAs, so Bloomberg, Market Access, TradeWeb, uh, the LSE, are all registered in the UK, regulated by the FCA. Come March 2019, or whenever it is that the UK finally leaves the European Union, um, that's not going to cut the mustard for transporting services to Europe. So in some ways, it's kind of it's not surprising that people like Bloomberg are looking at Amsterdam. Um, obviously, Market Access did this in April as well. Um, Just by wonder, so... Right now, maybe just to walk us us folk that don't quite understand what, what's happening right now. Yeah. So firms are having to make a decision, a contingency plan, I guess, if you will, by registering first. And the main areas that they're looking at are going to be Netherlands, Frankfurt, Paris, Belgrade, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it kind of, I think it breaks down really depending on industry. Um, so a lot of the electronic trading goes on in Amsterdam. You have a lot of high-frequency trading firms there. You have a lot of equity trading firms there. Frankfurt seems to be the destination of choice for the banks. Um, it has a big financial center. Obviously, Deutsche Börse is there as well. Um, the fund guys seem to be looking at Ireland and Dublin because a lot of the uh, has the biggest fund lab and processing center in uh, in Europe. And there's also things like Luxembourg as well, which has been friendly towards sort of buy side firms in the past. Tax haven kind of thing. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> no of course not. It's a strategic <laughs> no, geographical location in time zones. Uh, that we, the reason why, and that's similarity to English law. Um, yes, and tax breaks. <laughs> it's, uh, I think, so in itself, firms wanting to position themselves so they can still access the single market um, isn't surprising. They want to keep their MIFID passports. I think what it does show, though, is that um, no one wants to come out and say it, but everyone's kind of abandoning ship, basically. Um, Are there any holdovers right now that are still like, no, we believe, we're not, oh, we're yeah, not yeah. registering yeah. it. We're... Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about next group, for instance, shall we? <laughs> yeah, being bought with the CME and Michael Spencer, who is a long-time Conservative Party supporter, um, you know, part of the deal of acquiring Next was that CME would continue its HQ to be based in London. Uh, moving forward, but then again, in the same call with reporters, he also said we've got presences in Amsterdam, Milan, um, and other places as well. Well, you um, didn't say anything on Tuesday at the uh, next conference. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, it's got to be worrying for the UK. I think um, they're look, obviously firms have to do this because there's no deal in place so far. There's no, there's some level of transition agreement where the UK will retain access to the single market for. I think it's two years or something, mm-hmm. maybe two and a half, under current plans. Um, but there's nothing beyond that. So firms are going to be thinking, well, we've got customers in Europe, we have to be based in the Eurozone to you know, ship our 
substituting. Sorry. And sorry if you already kind of said mm-hmm. this, but so firms right now they just have to decide where they're going to register and register. So they wouldn't go. Why wouldn't they just register in each market? Why wouldn't they just say Amsterdam one in Frankfurt one and keep? Or is there a reason for not yes. just spreading that out? Well, I mean. Um, you know, when you register an APA, uh, for instance, which what Bloomberg's done and what Market Access did, when you register in a country, you then have to seek um, authorization from the regulator to operate as well. Okay. So Bloomberg's platform uh, and what someone who understands what's going on Bloomberg told me is that, yes, they'll be pursuing authorization from the Dutch regulator to kind of operate their APA there. So it's not just a case of, let's just register a MIC for it, and then we're based in Amsterdam, and it's all hunky-dory. You've got to go through the whole process with the regulator and the due diligence and everything else. Yeah. So it's expensive, and it's time consuming. Time consuming expensive. Yeah. Um, so looking ahead, I mean, just some of the language coming out of Europe at the moment is alarming, I think, for London's position as a financial centre. Even today you had uh, the CEO of Deutsche Börse taking a pot shot at London saying, well, you know, the British might be underhanded in their tactics by well, having I, tax cuts. And I have the exact quote so. right here. Uh, so he, I guess he's speaking at a conference. I'm not sure which conference it was. Mm. Apologies. Um, but saying for London, for great, so this is Theodore Weimer, Weimer? Viva, I think so. Deutsche Börse uh, CEO. Uh, for London, for Great Britain, this is about survival. You shouldn't believe that there is always fair play over there. The Great British is also just three countries, it's not the UK. The British will do everything to preserve London's standing as a financial centre by fair or perhaps even foul means, tax cuts, incentives, and the likes. I think it should also be pointed out that Weimar replaced it, uh, Karsten Kentiger, uh, uh, for who was ousted for insider trading, I believe, something like that. Yeah, shortly after the failed merger between the Deutsche Börse and the LSE. So they're quite happy with us when it looks like they were going to combine. But now, of course, we're perfidious Albion, who yeah. can't be trusted. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that is bothering me about the tenor of this conversation, and it should be setting alarm bells, is that the, the European countries obviously have no absolutely no intent whatsoever of allowing London to remain the financial centre. You can see this in the language used by uh, by Vima, you can see it in the moves by firms to set up in Frankfurt and outside and elsewhere, and you can also see it in um, some of the very uh, very slanted uh, policy coming out of the European Commission, such as the location of clearinghouses and everything else as well. And the ECB had another nod towards overseeing them the other day. Um, but all in all, I'd say if you're... Uh, if you're in charge of the city of London uh, and its image abroad, it's not a great time for you. So, okay. Yeah. And anything, what, what I guess are some of maybe the next benchmarks or what some of the things that maybe people should be keeping an eye out for going forward here over the next few months? I think what will be really interesting is what happens to, um, not necessarily like banks' operations in London, because they're always going to stay there. I mean, London has been a historic financial centre for hundreds and hundreds of years before yeah. the European Union even existed. So it'll always be one. Um, and banks will always have a presence in the city of London or Canary Wharf, wherever. Um, what will be more interesting is what people like JP Morgan, for instance, do with their campuses in Bournemouth or Edinburgh. Bournemouth, for instance, uh, a town where I, I spent quite a few years with my youth, it's the largest employer in the town. Um, is it going to now take that away now it's moving as a pivot towards the continent? Mm-hmm. Um, DTCC, another example, has a huge development campus in Wrexham. Um, the Bank of America, I think, has one in Chester as well. So are you going to see these little satellites... Um, Campuses which employ hundreds of people, thousands of people in some cases, um, are they going to sort of start compressing into one location in London? If that starts happening, that's truly worrying. Kind of like when the factories started closing down here in like Bethlehem and Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and Detroit, stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, 
became ghost towns, you know, overnight, and they had to rebuild and refigure out how yeah, they were going to answer. Exactly. And if I mean Bournemouth, for instance, just because I know it well, you've got to be worried about that. You've got to think all this development the town's had over the last sort of twenty years, becoming a city. Um, you lose the biggest employer. It's a huge blow to the economy, and not just confined to Bournemouth, but the whole south coast as well. Um, so I think that'd be really interesting, and that'll really determine what Britain's status is going to be after Brexit if these satellite offices and campuses start getting closed down and they start moving to, I don't know, like Germany or maybe even if it's software development to some of the eastern, old eastern bloc countries. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So that's the kerfuffle going on in Europe, over in Asia, as we've spoken about here on the podcast and as our colleague, our editor out in Asia, Wei Shen Wang, has reported quite impressively. Um, right now there's a fight going on between the Singapore Exchange and India and SEBI at large, but more specifically uh, the National Stock Exchange of India. Yeah, they've kind of taken, the, they're kind of the spear point, I guess. Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. Um, a really fascinating series of articles, actually, and probably some of the finest journalism we've produced this year, I think. Oh, yeah, there's there's that no chance that an so. English language publication, is kind of, I'm not sure, maybe some Asian language, or you know, Chinese, Mandarin, or whatever it is, a language maybe they've covered, but as everything I've read, Wei Shen has been on this, and there will, there will be a lot more coverage coming out. But this week there was a new development. Uh, Justice S.J. Vazivdar, I could be getting that name wrong. You know, I'm taking over Dandy Francesco's role here and getting names <laughs> wrong. Uh, the former Chief Justice of the Punjab and Haryana High Court, and the sole arbiter in the matter between the NSC and SGX. Uh, SJ, I'm not sure he or she laid out the timeline for the case going forward and ordered the NSC to extend the termination date of the listing agreement for SGX's Nifty 50 listed products. The extension of license goes up to two months after the arbitration outcome is announced, which is anticipated to be sometime in February 2009, though it could happen before or even after. Mm-hmm. Um, in turn, the injunction issued by the Bombay High Court on May 29th that delayed the SGX from launching its uh, successor derivative contracts on June 1st. That uh, injunction will continue to be valid for two months after the arbitration award is declared. So, yeah, I think just if you're confused listening to that, and I mean, I was editing the story and I was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> just to back it up a bit. Sure. Um, if you haven't been following the story, um, I think it was in February, SEBI, the Indian regulator, ordered the exchanges to terminate their foreign licensing agreements for Indian products. Essentially because they were, I think they were sick of just seeing all the liquidity for what are Indian products and the Nifty 50 and everything else going to a foreign exchange, Singapore exchange. Um, so the Singapore exchange kind of said, yeah, okay, cool, fine, whatever. And then they just developed their own sort of essentially kind of mimic contracts based on the yeah. sentiment price, which the NSE then took to court and said, you can't do that. It's our you know, intellectual property and everything else. SGX said it's a public, let's say it's a public number. Exactly, yeah. And it has its roots in a couple of cases that happened um, earlier in the millennium between ICE and NYMEX, I think, where they kind yeah. of, in the US at least, where they determined that settlement price isn't intellectual property that's determined by the public yeah. and released the public. Um, so what this has done essentially is it said that uh, while the arbitration is going on, um, the SGX's existing product set can continue to be used, but they can't release their new versions of the contracts until um, at least two months after the arbitration outcome, uh, which is a pretty big win, I guess, for the SGX, I think, So in terms of doing sure. this. And, you know, so a couple other dates to keep in mind here. So the arbiter is giving the NSC up until August 3rd to file a statement of claim against the XGX along with a list of documents 
following which the XGX has until September 26th to file its statement of defense and file its counterclaims, if any, along with supporting documentation. Then the NSC will have to file reply to the counterclaim by October 30th. A few days later, on November 2nd, draft issues be between the two parties will be circulated and inspection will be completed by November 19th. The arbiter will hear the framing of issues and further directions on evidence on November 21st. So this is just to say there's a lot more steps that have to come here. It's kind of weird, right? I mean, I don't know if this is normal in the Indian legal system. My knowledge of it is next to none. Um, mm-hmm. But it just seems like the arbiter has said, the arbitrator, sorry, has said, uh, okay, guys, let's move on to discovery. <laughs> like, you know, what? <laughs> like, surely you do that at the beginning, like when you kind of file your evidence and everything else. Yeah. But that seems to be what they're saying. It's like, okay, yeah, now it's here we all went to their argument, and then I'll make a decision in the first quarter next year. Okay. Um, there's a lot of people, uh, which I quote a couple people in the article, to, you know, if you want to get some feel for uh, some of the greater context, we'll link to all her long articles that she's been writing about it, and she's got, I know she's got a couple more coming, and if you have any thoughts on this, certainly reach out to Wei Shen. She's our see. point person, obviously. Yeah, so read that story for the current update, but she did file an, an extraordinary piece, I think it was early this week, was it, or last week? Um, I think last week, yeah. Called SGX NSC Battle Could Become a Long War, which really talks to everyone involved. Yeah. Uh, she's got some high-level sources. Uh, she's been working on this literally for months, and this is kind of the beginning of the fruits of that labour coming out, and it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so definitely worth worth reading, even if you're just interested in kind of, you know, how these uh, these skirmishes come about and what happens during them. So, okay. Mm. And then, so Europe down, Asia down, might as well come here to North America here quickly. Uh, since we did talk about this on the podcast either last week or week before about... Uh, privacy cell phone uh, location being used. We talked about a big Supreme Court case that was coming up um, that involved the Fourth Amendment uh, involving this guy, Timothy Carpenter, who was involved in a series of armed robberies in Ohio, Michigan, mm-hmm. sentenced over 100 years in prison. Um, they, the police, without warrant, got his uh, cell phone location uh, data that basically from the, from the cell phone providers that basically put him in the vicinity of these robberies he countered that without a warrant, that was a violation of um, the Fourth Amendment. It was effectively a wiretap, right? Is that what he said, or was it just a... Essentially, yeah. So yeah. he said this isn't... So so basically, uh, there was a court case that established a third-party doctrine. I'm going to be reading here from SCOTUS blog, a great place to go for anything that comes out of uh, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. But... Uh, the idea that the Fourth Amendment does not protect records or information that someone voluntarily shares with someone or something else. So you don't need um, a warrant for that. The Fourth Amendment says that you need a fourth uh, a, um, a warrant uh, to gain information um, that isn't publicly available. They're basically saying that these uh, records, that I'm voluntarily giving up this information, my cell phone data information, by having a cell phone. So this was a five to four ruling um, with you know your Ginsburgs, your Breyers, your Sotomayors, and Kagan, and then of course Justice uh, John Roberts, as usual, is the swing vote um, mm-hmm. in this case. He voted in the majority, uh, that narrowly saying that uh, that that police will need a warrant um, for cell phone location information. Now, in his opinion. He laid out a lot of instances where he, he stressed that this is just kind of focusing on this case, just on this. But the one thing I think that our readers will care most about is this one little piece here. And so this is from uh, Robert's opinion. 
and I'm reading from Scotus blog again, um, Amy Howe's article on this. Uh, because cell phones are such a pervasive part of life, quote, that carrying one is indispensable to participation in modern society, end quote, it can't really be said that a cell phone user is voluntarily sharing information about his location with his carrier. It's basically saying in today's society, you have to have a cell phone in modern phone, which is an interesting thing. Really for interesting. So you're not entering into a de facto um, consent to share your thing by owning a cell phone. No, it's that's that, fascinating. Yeah. It is, yeah, and so that you know, for privacy, you know, again, there's still this is a narrowly defined case. Um, so the, and that could swing one way or the other in future cases, but it is a first kind of step in this, I guess. I don't know what that means, people like Thesos and stuff who collect and sell this information. Sure. I guess because it's anonymized, it's not personal, identifiable, right? Yeah. It's okay, but then surely you're then collecting information that you haven't given consent for them to collect, and then selling it on it, sort of. And it, it actually reminds me, I, I'd read a story this morning, um, just to it's related to this, but uh, just to sidetrack slightly. I think it was in the FT or it was in Forbes, I can't remember, but it was talking about how hedge funds are starting to grapple with the legality of old data. Um, they were talking about one case about how uh, a former State Department staffer um, approached a hedge fund saying he's got all this kind of inside information for adjudication data and everything else. Do they want it? Obviously, have been taken from, I guess, NSA servers. When they say State Department, I assume it means intelligence. Sure. And that kind of thing. And so the hedge fund had to kind of report them, I think, and uh, all end up in the courts and stuff like that. But it's really interesting kind of sub-factor of when does it cross the line, not between being an invasion of privacy, I guess, but like between actually being legal and not legal to have this data and use yeah. it. So, yeah. Well, I mean, that's going to be the arms race is just trying to get access to IoT data, things like that, you know, mm. and these providers that are, you know, now obviously Thaso's not an inside guy at the yeah, sure, yeah. NSA, but I don't know. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting legal cases, and this will be, the reason why I think this will be interesting for our data fans out there, that this is a first step a first court case that will be used in cases going forward. I mean, if you're involved in this as well and you want to come on and talk about this, I think this could be a fascinating conversation. So, Absolutely. So, you know, feel free to get in touch and we'll have you on the podcast. So, um, Without discussing uh, children in cages, yeah. uh, which I think that we all... Or Melania Trump's jacket. Or Melania Trump's jacket. <laughs> um, which, you know, just discussing what's happening. Um I, the one thing I did want to talk about really quickly is Tuesday, June 26th. Mm-hmm. There are seven states holding their party primaries. Um, New York, here in New York, uh, you have it, which is basically mainly for Democrats. So there are, I think, the Republican primaries also going. Um, Utah, Colorado, Maryland, Oklahoma, Mississippi, South Carolina also have their primaries. And the reason why I think that people should care. I, you know, on Facebook and on Twitter, you know, I see a lot of people that were comparing the U.S. to 1930s Nazi Germany. I take a, I take exception with that. I think that our country is in a pretty fucked up place right now, but, yeah, but that doesn't make you Nazis. We haven't got kinder trying to take people out of the country, right? I mean, yeah. come on, you know. Um, but what I would say is this, and I always, like, we, we talked about this before about voting, but even if you are a Green Party advocate, and you don't like, you know, in the 2016 election, you didn't like Trump, you didn't like um, Clinton, uh, then you vote for that Green Party candidate just to show that there is a large contingency of voters that can potentially be swung to the Democrats, and just to show that you have a base and your issues need to be heard. 
And this is why it's going to be important. In 2014 midterms, only 36.4 of eligible voters turned out to vote, the lowest since the 1930s. 2014, while we're having all these crazy, uh, you know, discussions in Congress, you can't show up and vote. Yeah. In the in um, this is for the actual midterm election, not the primary. The actual general the actual election. election. Well, the actual election. That's a point. Yeah, yeah. So this one, like this, was just overall thirty six point four percent. And these same people that then got voted in in two thousand fourteen, there are many of the same voices that you hear either defending or attacking um, policies that are being rolled out yeah. uh, in the U.S. today. In two thousand ten, only forty point nine percent voted. The midterms are hugely important, and, and it, you, you're not going to get to vote again in the, for the president until 2020. Now, granted, does he get kicked out of office for them? We'll see. But <laughs> there, there's an argument the midterms are almost even more important than the presidency because they inform who runs and they inform the platform the party runs on as well. So I mean, and this know. is such a key thing is that you now the midterms are going to put a lot of pressure on to parties to either do I swing hard right, do I swing hard left. This is the first time that you as an elector as an electoral base can have a say. You you are disgusted by everything that you're seeing um, or with immigration policy. Great. You keep on you can keep on posting about it on Facebook about how disgusted you are. You can go to a march. Or in this country we have these things called bleeping elections. <laughs> so go out there and show that as a Democrat. I, I'm, I'm not a registered Democrat. I'm not uh, registered to either party, though I tend to swing Republican. But, um, though it's harder to say that. <laughs> um, as a, If you are a registered Democrat, go out. Even if you even if there's only one person on the ballot and that person's... Even, to, even if everybody's just running unopposed, you show up and you show the Republican Party, you show those guys that are going to be up for election in 2018... The Democrats are coming out hard yeah. for the midterm election. It's your first chance to show that you are going to be showing up in force. Well, especially even if the other way around, even you know, if the the migrant camps and whatever aren't your thing, even if you're pissed off at how fast the left, the time that conversation seems to have swung. It's your yeah. responsibility to turn up and then show that because it is going to inform who runs eventually. Yeah. If you're disgusted so. as I am as a Republican that. You know, we're we are creating tariff wars with China that we're not backing our closest allies, and we're talking about putting a twenty percent tariff on European car goods coming into this country. If those are things where you believe in a free market, have your voice heard. Mm -hmm. This is going to be your first chance. And then in two thousand eighteen, make sure you vote in the midterm elections. These are going to be huge. These are going to be Congress is supposed to be the most powerful branch of the U.S. government. Not the president, not the Supreme Court. It is Congress. They are, they work for you, the people. That is, you can make the face of Congress. Well, Congress if you can go and fire vote. the president without any reason. Congress. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like, impeachment yeah. is a political process. It yeah. is not a legal process. Hmm. So the other thing I would point out is, if you look at millennials, uh, basically make up the same amount of uh, voters as the boomers now make. Yeah. Actually, maybe even a little bit more. Uh, in the 2016 election, 18 to 30 year olds, um, only uh, what was it? Oh, I'm sorry, the millennials in the 2016 election, only 25 percent of potential voters voted. Gen X, 26 percent. Boomers, 35 percent. Silent Generation, 14 percent. 
which I, I'm getting it from Pew, but basically, this is all I say these are very low turnouts, and right now the boomers, the older people, the people are going to tend to have more conservative ideas on the way that policy should be run in this country. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are showing out of force. <coughs> get off of your ass and get out there and vote. Yeah. This is, you can, you can go to all the marches you want. You can put up all the Facebook posts you want. You can put up all the Twitter posts you want. You can do all those things. In this country, we're not Nazi Germany because we have these things called elections and because we can swing policy with our elections. So yeah. go out and take part in the democratic process. Let's run a little Waters experiment here as well, I think. Um, having just settled that and how it does affect how the eventual bracket turns out, some names are going to throw out potential Democrat candidates for 2020 right now. I think it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to do it now. Have a look at what happens during the primaries and see who actually ends up on the ballot piece. So. I swear to God, James, if I'm still here in 2020, <laughs> things have gone horribly wrong in my life. Well, and I've said that, right. <laughs> I said that in the 2016 elections, I said that in the 2012 elections, and the 2008 elections. We all know you're going to die making the podcast <laughs> these days. All right, so on the hard left, yeah. uh, you've got the big three. You've got Biden, Warren, and Sanders, yeah. I think. Um, Biden, not so much hard left. Um, and maybe Kirsten Gillibrand as well, I think. Yeah. They're the ones, I guess, who are likely to either team up. Bill Brand, who's run unopposed in this uh, primary, in this Democrat primary, she's. I think that she'll definitely be involved. Yeah. And she's been swinging further to the left, actually, over the last yes. few months, I think. Um, I guess Interesting. Upstate Democrat, who back in her day, back before she was senator, mm-hmm. was considered a very moderate Democrat, yeah. um, very on the gun rights issue, stuff like that, because she was coming you from upstate. upstate right? had yeah, exactly. yeah. Interesting now that very That's hard That's the red Democrat, so it's, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of moderates, I guess um, Steve Bullock, Montana governor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he's kind of prevaricated about whether he'll run, but he did go to Iowa for a couple of days um, yeah. recently. Uh, Ex Virginia governor Terry McAuliffe. Yeah. McAuliffe. Yeah. Um, you know he's pretty much said he's going to run, but uh, too close to the Clintons, maybe I think because he you know, guaranteed the house in Japan, yeah, yeah. all for it and everything else, raised money for him. Um, and then the last one I have on my list is maybe uh, Kamala Harris from California. She's got a lot of juice behind her. She's got her. a lot of juice. She went to, uh, she's making state visits. She's got a book coming out. She's an ex-AG. I think she's pretty much almost guaranteed to run, I think. so. Do yeah. we have any idea if it's Zuckerberg's going to be part of the Democrat Party or the Republican Party? I'd be extraordinarily surprised if Zuckerberg was a Democrat. Yeah? But, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'd be interested to see where he is. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's almost... Forced to be an independent, right? In terms of what his company's involved with now, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, almost that journalist kind of thing where most journalists register as independents as a point of pride rather than anything else. So, um, it'll be interesting to see which Democrat, if Democrat, again, there's so much that can happen before then. You know, again, is Trump even president by 2020 or is he going through an impeachment process? But uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't run. You know, I really wouldn't. No, yeah, yes, that's a, that's another thing I'm saying. You know yeah. what? I've done my. I've made America great again. I'm bye. I'm yeah. goodbye. I got a winner. This yeah. is it. Um, I mean, I've heard actually from people I know who know Republican politics that that's a serious thing they're considering right now. He yeah. So you know, I would not be shocked yeah. at all by that if that happened. Really, anything that comes out of this White House would not shock me at all. No. Um, it's just a question if he gives you notice on the Republican side to do it, so you can select a. Yeah. Well, from what I heard was that um, he might not run, but. Um, Pence will. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and that's the thing, you know, he anoints Pence, mm-hmm. and that for many people is a scarier proposition because Pence I'll will have him. similar policies, but will do it with a presidential demeanor yes, to him. Exactly. Um, right. He doesn't have Twitter accounts. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be, if I had to put my money, it, it is funny. In 2000, 
this would have been 2000, yeah, so leading up to 2016, I was saying Joe Brand was going to go then. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I was too early in that. So I think 2020, she's going to have a lot of problems because she's got a lot of flip-flopping in her career yeah. um, that she's got to answer for. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's very clear that she is putting herself in line. And there is the Clinton connections there that will drag her down Yeah, I know uh, with your Bernie Sanders uh, support. And if she's relying on cross-party, man, she's got to go up against Bullock. Like Red Montana, he's a governor of like two term governor yeah. of there, so he's got the credentials there. So yeah. I don't know if it's that'll literally, yeah. It'll be interesting to see though if Jeff Flake ends up running as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll, God, just if, if I think 2020 is going to be chaotic. Um, I think it's going to come down to running mates, personally. I think and who they pick for that, as it always does at yeah. the end of the day. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'll be it'll be interesting to see as a thought mm-hmm. process. My money's on Jill right now, right now. Oh, Gillibrand, I think it will almost certainly run. Uh, Gillibrand, Harris, um, McAleefe, um, and probably Biden, I think so. I don't think Sanders will run. How old is Biden going to be by 2020? Yeah, how old is Sanders going to be? How old is Trump going to be? <laughs> so, yeah. Good point, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Warren, I think, right. Unless she's uh, maybe a running mate, but we'll see. And um, quick World Cup update. Oh. Yeah, I mean, as, a, as an Englishman, are you... You know, watching the Tunisia match was fun because I was really hoping for 1-1 against Tunisia. That would have just been absolutely brilliant. Yeah, like, should have seen the videos of my Facebook feed, man. It was like we won the World Cup. Like, there were parties in the streets outside places. Yeah. I was like, Guys, we got one past Tunisia's backup goalkeeper yeah. in the 94th minute. So, <laughs> come on. Um, you know, regardless of whether we were robbed on several penalties from brave Tunisian defenders defending... Gareth Bale from uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about there. Yeah, of course, like yeah, yeah. Sour grapes. I think it's not the sour grapes. We won, so not really. But um, yeah, Who are they play this Sunday. We're playing uh, Paraguay, uh, Panama. Sorry, Panama. Um, this and then the Sunday. big Belgium match on. That's going to be an upsetting day. I've got a feeling. <laughs> Unless we can pull it out of the bag, and then then all bets are off in the British media. Then it's going to be. Then it is the pot noodle effect all over again. For those who aren't familiar, pot noodle is a disgusting snack in the UK, which is like freeze dried noodles and freeze-dried peas and bits of carrot, and you add hot water to it. And it comes up with this brown, sludgy mess that's um, it's really quite foul. But, uh, Does it have the ramen noodles that uh, every college kid has? It's pretty much like that, yeah. It's the same <laughs> thing. Um, but the pot noodle thing is weird, because you have one, you realise how disgusting it is, and then you just you never have one again for another year. Yeah. And then you start thinking after a while, they weren't really that bad. Maybe if you mix a little sachet of sauce and it'll be all right. And it reminds you of growing up. And, yeah, it's exactly, like, yeah. yeah. And then you think, well, actually, you know what? You don't have it for another three months. Think, no, I'm going to have a pot noodle. And then you have one, it's fucking disgusting. Again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's the same thing as the England team. You just, you know, you, they fail miserably. And you think, right, that's it. I'm done sporting England. I'm not doing it anymore. Well, it will be um, interesting to see this year if that, because right now, all the, like, even Brazil today, you know, they it was nil nil until like the eighty eighth, eighty ninth minute, something like that, and then they popped in two goals late to go mm-hmm. up. And after drawing in the first match, uh, Argentina is just God. That was an embarrassment that they had out there against Croatia. But yeah. Croatia looks quite good. Croatia right now. handy, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean they were really attacking good. right from yeah. the beginning. Beautiful game, aggressive, um, exactly playing the ball exactly what you want from yeah. the squad. I mean, I've always said. I had a sneaking suspicion that Croatia were going to top the group. Um, I didn't put up my brackets. So my bracket's completely screwed now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my, my dominant performance from week one is not going to be repeated in week two. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. It's been a tournament for giant killers, I think, really, that's the only way I can describe it. I yeah. was at a rehearsal dinner last night, and 
my wife's uncle is German, and he was just almost inconsolable grief going, that's it, we're out, we can't play anymore. <laughs> it's over for Germany. It's like an inverse England. We get one goal, and they're like, maybe we can do it. This time we can go all the way. That was a fun thing to see here in the U.S., this fracturing of a fan base of those, you know, for me, I would, you know, I'm pulling from North, you know, for North American teams in there, you know, I, I was just rooting for Mexico hard by the time, like, I remember four games, I was like, I don't know, they, they are a main room, I'm not sure, by the time the game started, I was like, yeah, get those Germans, get them Germans! I got the so I was all about it, but then, like, Landon Donovan took a massive, massive beating um, amongst fans, because, uh, Heineken or somebody, he was like, it was an ad saying, you know, support Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're our brothers to the south. And spot, you know, he just took money from Heineken to say that, you know, and so <laughs> all of his teammates, you know, that, that played with him were all like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah. So it was interesting to watch this kind of split, but I'll be still pulling for Mexico. I want to, I want to see them do well. Yeah, I do. Yeah, as well, especially considering that they're hosting the World Cup in, uh, in eight years' time along with America, how that's going to work with a big freaking wall across it I'm not sure but there we go so, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think they have to go over the wall I think they'll be able to drive through or take yeah, a plane yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to go watch a game in Guadalajara which you know I wouldn't advise but so, so. alright so I think that's everything we got uh, we'll be back next week um, we'll be having some guests coming up in a few weeks here yep um, but yeah if you have any ideas that you all want to hear about or talk about just shoot me a line Um, Otherwise, enjoy the World Cup, and we'll see you next week. See you soon.